Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. All right, Ecclesiastes 4, let's get there together. Ecclesiastes 4 will be done the whole chapter today, 1 through 16. Uh, As you're turning there, just want to welcome you. If you're you're new, thanks for being with us. Uh, Also, if you're brand new to the world, like Joy, we're so thankful for her to be with us too. We praise God for uh, Henrik and, and, and Janet and, and delivering joy safely. Um, we're going to read Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16 together. Uh, then we'll pray and then we'll begin. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. This is God's word. Again, I saw all the oppressors, oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness in two hands, full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and selfish, I'm sorry, old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's pray together. Lord, we simply ask for your blessing on your word. It is powerful and wonderful and teaches us the truth. Lord, you've been kind to deliver us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. Lord, we are completely undeserving. And Lord, we ask not that we would somehow uh, just be happy in the fact that that's happened, but rather, Lord, be with those who proclaim Christ to the world around us. I pray, Lord, though, that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love this morning so that we might be able to grow, bring you honor, and pull others into knowing and seeing the greatness of our God. Lord, may we rejoice and find joy in you this morning. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever either grown up in a home where this happened or you've experienced it now as an adult, but when I am around my house, I usually end up calling the kids to help clean up maybe at the end of the day to clean up this or that. You know, maybe it's a half of a crayon here, some sort of Lego over here that's like half there. It's not enough to actually make a whole set. But the one that kills me is when you find a single puzzle piece, right? This might have happened to you before where you find a puzzle piece and you're like, oh my goodness. Especially the OCD people, it kills them. They're like, oh my goodness. There's somewhere where there's a puzzle that cannot be completed. This is a tragedy. Um, you know, and, and I recognize that a lot of times when we do that, we, we're looking for a puzzle piece to fit into a puzzle maybe that we'll work on later. When I came to this text today, I felt as though I didn't know what to do with this text exactly. I felt like it was a puzzle piece without a puzzle. I didn't know exactly how to fit it in. So as part of my job was to look through this and figure out the colors and figure out the shape and figure out what happened before it and figure out what happened after it to fit it in. By itself, it's full of really pretty, very helpful proverbs. These little wisdom sayings that make a lot of sense to us. They get thrown around a lot. They're very helpful. They make sense. Well, what my task, of course, was to do is to take that and make sense of what has happened before and how it fits into what Kohelet has been doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're just joining us, Kohelet is the writer. He's the assembler, the one that's bringing people together to tell them this wisdom. Last week we covered Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 4, 3. But you'll notice this morning we're actually not starting at verse 4. We're actually going to go back and start at 4, 1. That's because 4, 1 through 3 kind of act like a hinge. They're going to be really important for both of these. It helped us as an important part of chapter 3 because it closes out the idea of evil and wickedness. But we also see that it's an important part of chapter 4 because it contains within it a formula that we're going to see played out through all of chapter 4. You're going to look there and you're going to see the word better or better than. Let me just take you through, take a look at your text. In verse 3, you'll see that it says, but better than both is he. Then verse 6, better is a handful. Verse 9, two are better than one. And then verse 13, he says, better was a poor and wise youth. Throughout this, you're seeing him tie this together with the structure. It's done on purpose. Um, I'm, I'm simply bringing this to light to help us understand, even though it might be difficult for us to put all these puzzle pieces together, they start to take shape when we recognize some of the structure that he's laying out for us here. And so I think it's the best thing for us to do is to actually take all of chapter 4, and so we'll start in verse 1 today. Now in chapter 3, we observe that God was the ultimate creator, designer, and also the sovereign one over all of creation. This was manifested, if you remember that, that beginning poem, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, over and over again, we see that God has manifested his design and sovereignty over all things within their time. All the good and beautiful things that we see that happen, but then also when we get to the second half of, the, of that chapter, we see that the world is full of wickedness and death and injustice. And yet, even in the midst of that, God is over all of these things as a sovereign ruler. We recognize that he's proved to us that all that God has done, remember that word we talked about, made or done, anything that he will do is set forever. He is over all. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. And so, all that he has done is set. But we rightly ask the question, if that's true, are we just to throw our, you know, toss our fate to the wind, 
Like it's all fatalistic, it doesn't matter at all. What should we do with all this? Actually, Kohelet tells us that God does this for the sake of saying to people that they should fear before him. He brings them back to the idea of worshiping God as the one who is overall. He finished this idea in that chapter reminding us that God will judge both the righteous and the wicked in his time. And there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that was his lot. We talked about this last week. Now, even though that is true, even though it's, it's true that there's nothing better that you and I should do than to rejoice in our work, he is going to take all of chapter 4 now, and he is going to show us how to find joy in all that we do. He told us to do it. Now he's actually going to show us what that looks like in the midst of a broken world. I have entitled today's sermon, How to Live in a Miserable World. Because what we saw from last week, it's a, it's a world of oppression, a world of evil, a world of death. All of these come to everybody within the world. Now, I recognize if I name it that, how to live in a miserable world, that may not seem to be so much of a sermon that's needed while most of us drove here in nice cars. Many of us own our own homes. Uh, many of us are enjoying maybe coffee between services or maybe even while we're sitting here. We're in a climate-controlled room. We, we're, we're living the American dream, right? We understand that we have much, and some of us are even still in the prime of our youth. Uh, we just don't have vast amounts of trouble. So it would be tempting to think that, well, I don't have a lot of trouble, or I don't live in the miserable world too much, so I don't have to listen to this. What he will show us right away is that this sermon is very much for us. He will show us, in a sense, how miserable we really are with our understanding being grounded to our sovereign Lord. This is a message for us. We will find that the problems Kohelet addresses are relevant for our own situations without, within this home week ourselves here. In short, our author is going to preach God's law as the answer to our misery. Now, I said that right. I want you to hear that again because it's kind of strange. He's going to preach God's law as the answer to our misery. He is going to give us application of some of the most basic and foundational things that we find in these principles in the Old Testament, giving us grace that we might live well here under the sun. Uh, there are five problems that he exposes here in this text. It's not a comprehensive list of sin and all the things that are terrible in the world, but it does offer us a healthy sample of those things that destroy humanity and cause us much sorrow and vexation. His list includes oppression, envy, dissatisfaction, aloneness, and old age that leads to insignificance or being forgotten. In each of these paragraphs, the author either implies that we ought to do the opposite action of the bad thing that's being done, or he just straight up tells us a better way of living here under the sun so that we can avoid this pain and sorrow to its extent. Today, I want us to hear then our author and respond with a willing and humble heart that recognizes that what he is giving us is wisdom. And as we talked about wisdom literature in general, what he is trying to do is teach us to live well. Uh, let's look at verse 1 together. This is what we're trying to do. We want to remember that these commands are not just cumbersome, but rather they are freeing. They are for our good. And what he is going to do here as we start to look at this is you're going to realize he's holding out in front of us a lifestyle of vexation, evil, or we could choose to live a lifestyle of joy and goodness and love. 
And he wants us, of course, not to choose this one, but rather to choose that which is full of joy and good. In verse 1, he says this, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, we've all seen oppression at some stage or another. We've at least heard about it. We may have even seen it. We may have even been an oppressor in some way or another. You may have heard of some of these strong allegations against China in the recent times, as they have been, uh, it's alleged that they have had these crimes against humanity concerning the Uyghur people in the last year. Uh, there's good evidence that shows that the Chinese government has targeted a small people group, mostly Muslim ethnic minority group, and the allegations are pretty bad. I mean, the allegations include them putting them into these, uh, they call them re-education camps, uh, using them for forced labor, uh, torturing them, sterilizing women, and even genocide, or what we call mass murder, because these people are who they are. And we remember, if I can just continue to pass on, within our own last, last century here, the horrors of the Holocaust for the Jewish people who were targeted and destroyed. Or, maybe if you're old enough to remember, um, nearly a million Tutsi people in Rwanda who were slaughtered within 100 days. It doesn't take big news, though, to make sure that you and I understand what oppression is. We watch it happen all around us. We watch it happen in our schools. We watch it happen in the classroom. We watch it happen in our neighborhoods. We watch it happen uh, even sometimes in our own households. Um, we, we see it by bullying or coercion, that idea that might makes right, or the idea that uh, the survival of the fittest is what wins the day. It happens in all these different places, in the workplaces and at school, and maybe even, I hope not, but in church as well. We live in a world where sinful people use their power, their strength, all that they have to overcome others and get what they want. That's what our text is pointing out here. If you see here, he sees that he's talking about that there's, there's power on the side of the oppressor and there's no one to comfort the one who is oppressed. So I'll ask the question that naturally should come to us, right? If we're trying to figure this out. Is power evil? Is strength and intellect and advantage something that should be eradicated in the world? Is that the right response to this problem? Because when you and I read this, there's a temptation here for us to take this and think that we just need to get rid of the power then. That's the problem here that brings oppression. Level the playing field somehow. That's what we should do. We should put everyone in an equal position so there'll be no advantage and then we'll all be in good shape. That's what's going to happen here. The only problem is that that doesn't take care of the problem at all. The real problem is the sinful heart of man. Guess what? Oppression will still happen if you level the playing field. It's bound up in the heart of man. It also doesn't take account the fact that God is the one who's given power and intellect and money and advantage. For what purpose, though? To oppress? <laughs> Read the Bible. You already know. Of course not. To bless the world around us. To give, to take care of those who have not been given the same gifts. And so to, to, to kind of say we just need to destroy all the power, make it all level playing field, let's get this all equal, just doesn't make sense with reality 
and it ignores the biggest problem that we have, which is sinful hearts. Only a redeemed perspective, one that trusts God and knows him, can see that power is not bad, but a wonderful gift from God. Power, of course, in the hands of evil people will bring oppression, but power in the hands of one who loves his neighbor as an outflow of knowing and loving our God will do nothing but bless a society that properly understands that. So, I'll ask you, how do you use your power? How do you use the resources that you have? Your intellect, maybe the position in life that you're at. What do you do with all that God has given to you? A Christian should have no part in oppression of any kind. Let's make sure, make sure we understand that. We should never be using the power to coerce or hurt or harm others for our own good. This is evil. But rather, we should seek to bless others by protecting the weak, by giving to the poor, by loving the unlovely. In this way, we are supposed to be like our Savior, right? In Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus answers the problem because the disciples are asking, hey, I want to sit by you next to the, you know, at your throne. Can I have this part? Can I have this part? And this is how he responds to them. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus calls us, uh, I mean, sorry, Jesus calls us to a life of service to one another, to the world around us, not a life where we just get whatever we want. This applies, of course, to our home, to the workplace, to the school, and of course, to our church. Yes, oppression is a terrible reality in the fallen world. Bad enough that Kohelet says, better than, the, better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, just, just, I'm just going to state the obvious. Since none of us meet that category, we need to right, rightly understand then that we should not wish to be dead or that we had never been, but rather seek to push back on this oppression and serve those who are oppressed. We recognize that he doesn't offer us a specific response, but the rest of the Bible shows us, both Old Testament and New Testament, that this is consistent with what we are supposed to do as Christians. Now, in verse 4 through 6, he's going to move on, and he's going to talk about workaholism, and he's going to talk about laziness. It's an interesting read here. So let's read it. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his brother. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Uh, as a boy, I grew up in a small town, about 6,000 people, and uh, I played soccer. Uh, like every kid, I think, played soccer in the town. We, it was a short playing season, but it was in the summertime. Uh, we'd all gather together. Uh, play soccer, uh, all these locally sponsored teams. I, play, I remember I played, played for one of it's a Pride Pontiac uh, dealership. It was a car dealership. You know, free shirts and also free advertising for them. My sister played on this grocery store team called Joe's No Frills. Um, so th this was kind of like the summer thing that we did. And of course, there were medals back then, but I don't know if you guys know this, but it was only for first, second, and third. Like, the rest of the people didn't get any medals. No trophies for participation. Sorry, that was just the way it was, I know. 
But I can remember two years in a row that they also did something really fun. Actually, they did it for a long time. Our town was so small and our news was so boring that the newspaper would highlight the top scorers in the town children's rec soccer league. I know. I made that two years in a row in my division for the highest scorer. But on the third year, I, I did well, but I didn't make that list. And when it came time for the award ceremony, we realized, my family and I realized that the top scorer was not me, but a friend of mine, a kid on my team named Ryan Fish. At the end of the season, the award ceremony came, and I went up and received like a, a second place award for highest scorer, the runner-up, and he received the first place. And when this happened, I remember his mom standing next to me, and they're all clapping, and he's going up to get his award for the top scorer, and she leaned over to me very kindly. She, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a bitter, nasty thing. She said, he's been working on that for three years, ever since you beat him the last two at being the top scorer. That's what's going on here. Like Ryan looked at me and said, I want to score more than Chris. I want to get to the end and be the winner. That's what's going on in here. The thing that drives him to be so good, to make sure that he's a top scorer, to make sure that he's the one that's published in our small town newspaper, was that he wanted to make sure that he scored more goals than I did. I had no idea that ever since the first time I had success as the top scorer, that this got under Ryan's skin and it drove him to his success. This is the principle that's going on here, which is envy of your neighbor. He's jealous. He's envious here. He's lusting after whatever it is that his neighbor has. This isn't just keeping up with the Joneses. This is making sure in the end that we're better off than the Joneses and that everyone knows it. But he tells us very plainly, this is not good. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. You've got two extremes here in this little proverb. You've got the lazy sluggard and the fierce workaholic. He tells us what happens to the sluggard. And if you know anything about the wisdom literature, you know that the sluggard is not the guy that you want to be. He says in verse 5, the fool folds his hands, which is just a way of saying he does nothing. He folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, this is not some weird verse about cannibalism. It's talking about the fact that he can't even provide for his own body. And so it eats in the sense itself. He can't survive if he doesn't work. So that's not a good option. We don't want to be the sluggard. But then he talks about the workaholic, the man chasing after success at all costs because he will not be bested by his neighbor. This man is miserable, though. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. He recognizes here the idea that the person who works but is content is one who is happy in his labor. He definitely isn't encouraging us to mediocrity and laziness. We know enough from what the rest of the scriptures show us that we should work hard, that we should give ourselves to our toil, that we should make much of God in the way that we work. The rest of this shows us, but he's trying to help us see the very simple Christian virtue of contentment. He's showing us that if we are guided by envy or jealousy of another person, and this will never make us happy. We may be, in a sense, the, the top scoring position, but we will have two hands full of toil and striving after win instead of peace and joy. There are probably many of you could even tell stories about this, but I've heard many interviews of successful people 
who've really come out on top. They've, they've given up everything to get to the top. They've climbed the ladder harder and faster than anyone else did. When they get to the top, they find themselves alone and miserable. Two hands full of toil and never grasping that which they truly wanted. It was Jesus in Luke 12 who said, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, in the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you know Paul's words, right, in Philippians 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing uh, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, did you hear the two keys to contentment in those last two verses? I love this. In Hebrews 13, 5, he says, be content with what you have, for, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this last one's so clear. We say it, I I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's the key to contentment? A person, the one who actually fulfills. Paul ends his description here and helps us to understand that we are strengthened by God, that he will not forsake us, and that we can be content in him. So I will ask you to consider, are you content with your life? Are you content in your work? Are you content with the gifts that God has given you as a person? Maybe you're not as smart as the guy next to you in the cubicle over. Maybe you're not quite as fast at your job. Maybe you have different limitations, but are you content with what God has given you? Are you lazy? Do you give yourself over to being like, well, I'm not as smart as that guy, so it doesn't really matter? We know he calls us to toil, but to toil well with contentment. Do you strive for the next job title? or having success over others, or tirelessly pursuing work that will get you on top, I'm just reminding us, guys, that will not satisfy us. So brothers and sisters, we are to work hard with all the power that God has given to us, but never to do so by envy or strife. So look to God for your strength, your contentment, and work as unto the Lord. But Kohelet moves on here to another sad situation. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, there are two problems in this paragraph here. Take a look. The main one is dissatisfaction, not being satisfied with riches. But the other one actually will play itself out further in the next verses the problem of of being alone. He describes a person who is good at finance. I mean, he is good at it. He's he's savvy when it comes to his investments. He's frugal in his spending. In a sense, he's kind of like Rich Dad of that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He's done everything right in his life. He's come out on top, but he's a slave to his job. If we look closer at this person, although we may think it's good, he looks a lot more like Ebenezer Scrooge an old miser that doesn't care about anything 
except adding to his bank account and riches. No time for enjoying it. Needs to make another dollar. The worst of it is that not only, of course, that he's dissatisfied with his riches, what he got, but it's worse than that. This person is so distracted with the pursuit of more and more and more that he is blind to the fact that he can't take any of it with him. Worse, he can't even leave it to anyone. And so what he's been doing is just adding up to a big bunch of nothing. We might think that this couldn't happen to us if we have family around us, we have a spouse, we have children, we have brothers and sisters. But this caricature isn't laying out tight guidelines, but showing us a situation that illustrates the futility of pursuing riches here on earth. Yes, of course, they're useful. We've seen that throughout the scriptures as well. Yes, of course, it's wise to accumulate resources, but wealth will not satisfy. Rather, we are to be those who have open eyes to real wealth, lasting riches, those things that will truly satisfy us all the way down in our soul. Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we can't talk about satisfaction without going to probably what's my favorite spot to understand Jesus, John 6. Listen to this. Talk about satisfaction. He says this, Jesus does. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, they're responding, right? The disciples, those who are listening. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We want that. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. You're looking at it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I mean, dissatisfaction dissipates when we get a hold of the true bread, when we understand that Christ is sufficient. He is like the living water that just doesn't stop. And we recognize this, our dissatisfaction with this crummy old world and the riches that just go away seem to fail and, and seem to be paling in comparison to the beauty of the living water. When we lean on him, he will fulfill every one of our needs. When we drink deeply of him, he will satisfy our souls. But I also said that there's another problem here in this text and that he would play it out in the next verses. It's the problem of doing life alone. Listen to Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. He says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two, uh, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, you probably already know this passage. It gets quoted a lot. It makes a lot of sense to us. It's a good one. It shows us the benefits of partnership and love between friends. He points us really to this interesting situation. It's out in the wilderness. There's a travel, a journey that's going on, probably going from one town to the next, all throughout the countryside. And we're not thinking about maybe like the trees and the beauty of a, some sort of pastoral background. We're talking about a pretty desert place that's not nice and hospitable to travelers. So if you're on this journey, 
How does it go for you if you are alone? That's what he's really doing here. He's showing the contrast, if you're alone or you're with someone. The pathways through the wilderness were treacherous places. Think about this in Israel, what's going on there? Rocky, mountainous, uh, often unstable and crumbling. If you fall into one of these deep crevices or off the side of a steep hill, who in the world is going to get you up? If you break an ankle or something like this, it may take days for someone to even find you. You may end up dead. But if you had a partner, oh man, how much better would it be someone to actually help you, whether they need to go get help or actually get down to, to pull you out? You have a real chance of making it if you're not on your own. We also know that these trails were long. It wasn't like a one-day journey. Sometimes they'd be on these trails for many days in a row. And thus, when it became nighttime, they had to set up camp. Now remember, we're out in the desert. What do you need to do then? Probably set up some sort of makeshift dwelling. Maybe you're finding a cove to kind of be in. But it doesn't really keep you safe from all the elements that are around. And here we know also there's not a lot of wood to make a fire. And so you're left, as soon as the sun goes down in a desert, with some extreme temperatures. It may not kill you, but you are going to spend a chilly night if you are all alone. And as strange as it might sound to us, the best thing you could possibly do is if you're with somebody else and you couldn't make a fire, would be laying right next to one another, to join with one another for the heat of the bodies that would be next to each other. The suffering and potential harm would be mitigated with a partner that come along and help you to stay warm as you sleep in the midst of a cold night. And then one more thing he talks about, the treachery, if someone comes along while you're on this journey, to overcome you, to hurt you, a thief or a robber. These men would stay out there, and we see other biblical passages that show this, and they would try to jump people to take their wealth, hurt them in some way. Our author shows us here, if you're alone, robbers who have the position of uh, like surprise, and they get in the right spot, you're toast. Like You're almost certainly doomed. But if you have someone with you, you at least have a fighting chance against those that would take advantage of you. So our author ends this paragraph, this little proverb, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Now, that gets used in a lot of crazy ways, too. I want to make sure we're careful here. This is not like talking about the Trinity or saying that if you have two friends, that's good. But if you have three friends, that's really good. This is just simply a proverb that was used in the ancient times, understanding that if someone's by themselves, it's much more uh, difficult to live and to, and to have success but rather if there's more together, there's numbers and community, there's going to be better success. So my question then for us, what were we made for? Not specific task, but um, if you look around in this room, what are we doing here? Yes, we're praising and worshiping God. Let me, let me put it this way. Throughout the week, we call one another. Throughout the week, we get together. Last night, we had a going away party for um, Derek and Catherine Moore. Uh, several people got together, encouraged them, prayed for them. Maybe some of you met for coffee with one another and prayed for each other. Or perhaps you shared some time in the Word or just shared life together. We were not created to live by ourselves as hermits. He's showing us the importance of community, created to live with one another. And of course, all of humanity is supposed to do this. But Christians, all the more, we're called to this over and over again. That it's not just a nice addition that, like, yeah, you should get with other Christians. No, 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 no. It's actually a foundational Christian reality. Make sure you understand that. Not a foundational Christian command. No, no, no. You were placed in the body of Christ. Now, you can rebel against that, 
but you need to see scripture shows us that this is part of our identity, that we are brothers and sisters, members one of another. And so we rejoice in this because we recognize that this idea of partnership is one that God has given to us for our good. He calls us this to do this over and over again. We see it in Ephesians 4, if you remember this. He talks about the whole body joined together with every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In 1 Corinthians 12, 14, he says that for the body does not consist of one member, but many. Or you know this section too, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The New Testament is full, if you remember this when we talk about community in general, it's full of one another commands, calling us to submit to one another, comfort one another, care for, serve, etc., etc. But I think the best place to sum all this up is when Jesus gives us the new command in John 13. He says this in verse 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, dear Christian, brother and sister, do not live alone. Partner with God's people. Love your neighbor and experience the goodness of God's design. Remember, as he says here, that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now lastly, let's look at verse 13 through 16. He says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. He had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity striving after wind. Now, this is a strange story, right? Like when I first read this, I was like, who's talking? Who is the king and what's going on? I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible. This is probably a story that people in this time period understood. They understood the ascendancy to the throne. They understood what was going on. They're comparing someone young to someone old. And even if they are the king, this young person even if they're wise, is far superior to the old one. Very interesting. He also uh, compares and contrasts wisdom and foolishness. But he gives us the explanation here. He is training us by the end for us to understand what's going on. He's telling us that popularity is fleeting. Even though the opening verses talk about an old foolish king, the emphasis is not actually on being foolish throughout this little parable. As you read the rest of the account, you realize that no matter how many people he led or how he got to the throne, he would eventually pass away. He would eventually not be the king any longer. And when he does pass on, the people who come after this do not rejoice in him. They don't know him. They don't care about him. He has no enduring legacy with them whatsoever. He's old. No matter what, you know, how, how great he was in his youth, there is another young, wise king who will come to the throne. And no matter how many people he led, he will eventually be forgotten. So what are we to do with this? There is an important lesson here that follows along actually with what we've already been learning throughout this whole passage. What kind of life does the king have if his riches are found in being king? 
Think about all that he has. His true gain is not in riches, is not in ruling over a bunch of people, but rather in his living before God and rejoicing in that work. Above all others, he will get the chance, think about this, to use money, resources, people, popularity to gain something here on earth. But even if he tries to do that, it will only be mere breath. Hevel. It will all dissipate. It's fleeting and will not last. I'm not going to apologize for this, but if you're old, you recognize that you're in the seat of the king. Man, this is not good. So what should we do? Well, we should still rejoice in the work that God has given us. If you're young, let me just direct you to Ecclesiastes 12.1. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Whether old or young, guys, he's called us to recognize and fear the Lord. Younger or old, he has given us life to live here on earth. And we know the great truth is that we don't start with the second greatest commandment. We start with the first, which is not to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. This comes true over and over again as he calls us to not only fear God, but to please him. Our first and right and glorious and joyful priority is to know and love God. It's only after that proper priority that we can understand all these commands now to love our neighbor. I'll tell you this right now. The world tries to do it even. They try to love their neighbor. Not only does it fail, there's no lasting joy whatsoever. The effects go to pot within a generation. It's over. How in the world can we have some sort of lasting effect we talk about this in missiology and, and helping others, right? Like, if, if we don't have the, the core be changed, it will only peter out within a generation. There must be something greater at the center, and that is love for and fear of God alone, worshiping Him alone. The author says, of course, in Hebrews 11, if we're trying to please God, if you remember this, that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. We are called to look to Christ and trust him alone. Now we've worked through all these verses. I want to finish this up and wrap up a little bit here and see that Kohelet is not giving us any new teaching. So Ecclesiastes, well, it's not like just quotations from the Old Testament before that, is it? No, but I want you to see His advice is coming straight from the law. You know this already. Let this sink in here. He's telling us to love our neighbor. He's applying all these really helpful ways that maybe we wouldn't have come up with on our own, but he's all these miserable times throughout life. He's showing us that the answer for these, presupposing that we love God for Christians, is to love our neighbor. He's showing us that all these problems have a very distinct theme. Let me just go through. Have you noticed it? from oppression of our neighbor, to envy of our neighbor, to dissatisfaction with riches with no neighbor to share it, uh, to the insecurity of being alone without a neighbor, to being an old king that has had all his neighbors turn against him after his death. He's telling us, first, of course, to love our neighbor as the command goes, but there's there's an understanding there you have to have a neighbor first as well. And so this idea of partnership and neighboring is right. This author is making it clear that we are not meant to selfishly live our lives alone, but we were created in the image of God, meant for community 
and joy as we lift one another up in love. Uh, This position that we find ourselves in then is one of choice today. Uh, You can certainly live in a community thinking that this passage isn't for you. You know, I'm part of a community already. The problem isn't just the fact that you do or don't have people around you. The real problem is one of the heart. The real problem is unneighborliness in our hearts that doesn't seek to love others, but rather thinks we're okay because I love God, but I don't actually have to love others. Well, he called us today not only to neighbor or partner along with people, but to show the love of God to them, sharing our resources, continuing on in care and love. You and I were not designed to harm one another for our own personal gain, this idea of oppression. We weren't made to work tirelessly so that we could have a little bit more than our neighbors. We weren't made to be dissatisfied, working nonstop for the riches that will only be left for those that are behind us after we die. We weren't made to be alone. We were made to be wise, content, relational beings who strive to build one another up in love. This is how we rejoice in our work. And this is how we live well under the sun here. Before we started looking at each of these little parts, if you remember, I said that the the, the author was putting out choices in front of us. One of vexation and bad, or evil, and one of joy and good. Now, that's not really my idea. That's one that we find in the Word. Let me read Deuteronomy 30, verses 9 and 10, and then later down in 19 and 20 for you. Just listen. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all of your work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of the cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when, so here's the condition, right? When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He says, obey the law. And where is that grounded? Loving God himself. Then verse 19 and 20. I have set before you, ready, here's the decision. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. As we live in this miserable world, because, make no mistake, when you look around and see the oppressions and the evil that is done under the sun, it's pretty distracting and disappointing and maybe even depressing. But as we live in this miserable world, he calls us to repent of our own unneighborliness and to love God and to love the neighbors that are around us as we obey his voice. And only then will we experience true joy under him under the sun. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, if it was not for him, we would not rejoice in our work because we would be headed straight to hell. The wrath of the Father would be on us. But thanks be to God, you mercifully gave to us your Son. We thank you, Lord, for your grace through the Word that that shows who you are, through your Spirit's work in hearts today. I trust you to do that. I know that my words are just trying to relay the truth of Ecclesiastes, but God, your spirit can take that and help us to meditate and and to grow us and to change us and transform us. Would we repent of our unneighborliness? 
Lord, we pursue others that are around us, those who do not know you, and also our brothers and sisters. Would you teach us to love one another, not envious, but those who bless others with what you've given. We thank you for our great example in Jesus, who did not come to be served, but came to serve. Lord, may we be full with your love as we continue to follow on in what you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.